He was ahead. There was nothing you could have done. He won fair and square. Well, that's that, Abrahams. Well, if you can't take a beating, perhaps it's for the best. I don't run to take beatings. I run to win. If I can't win, I won't run. If you don't run, you can't win. And welcome to Friends at Dusk, a Christopher Nolan filmography podcast. I'm your co-host, Marshall Doig. And I'm your other co-host, Jake Harris. And tonight we are discussing the influences on the prestige. All the obfuscation and illusion and sleight of hand, secrets and lies, secrets and lies. So many secrets. So many lies. <laughs> lifetime of secrets and a lifetime of lies in one person's case, but we'll get and, to that. And even beyond. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Family drama. God, the, whew, the, oh, it's a wild book. You're in for a good, good conversation. This is going to be fun. Yeah. But now that we've teased that, let's go to the boring stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you have, Jake? Uh, this week in Christopher Nolan. This week in Christopher Nolan, um, I set up Google Alerts um, a while ago to catch any and all news that might be coming about our man, Christopher Nolan. And any upcoming news for Oppenheimer and uh, we haven't really gotten anything. The whole, uh, the news about the bomb test explosion stuff uh, a couple of weeks ago has really been the only big new press that's come out about it. Everything that I saw on the Google alerts this week was just uh, clickbait lists and, you know, film websites compiling their most anticipated movies, of 2023 list. And of course that movie is on there. Uh, so it was a lot of stuff like that, and we haven't really gotten uh, any more new information. But uh, I know, I see here, you have some stuff to talk about on that regard. Yeah, yeah. The Hans Zimmer interview on 60 Minutes was yeah. fun to watch. Had a couple of good quotes. He talked about with the one of the collaborators on one of his current projects. They were talking about how he likes to be involved with productions before filming has even started. And uh, I went all Captain America going i recognize that reference that's just what he does with no one too yeah uh, he has like built up his own sound and music library by taking recordings of actual instruments and it's just like this insanely huge thing and he built it from scratch himself and it wasn't clear in the interview if he did the code himself but he said or leslie stall said with computer code so i don't know if he's uh-huh. also secretly like a master programmer or do or something but that I mean, was probably neat. yeah i mean could be I mean, he's I wouldn't put it past him. The synthesizers and stuff. But the couple quotes that really stood out that mainly just for fun, but that I liked where he said at one point, at my best words will fail you because I'm using my own language in reference, of course, to his music. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. He definitely nice. does. And then right near the end, they were talking about how another one of his collaborators makes uh, his own instruments sometimes including an ostrich egg they made a what leslie stall described as an ocarina out of an ostrich egg and he says yeah (laughs) he says everything can be made to be a musical instrument in one way or the other and they certainly seem to be trying to prove that i mean yeah so true (laughs) yeah so that was pretty neat that's cool and then i haven't had this uh, is kind of time to watch that yet i need to get on that yeah do it it's it's pretty fun they uh they highlight the joker theme in there so oh, of course there's yeah. there's our nolan for us <laughs> and then kind of going bleeding into what i've been watching lately so it's more 
I'm just recognizing all the known type things or the things we're doing for the podcast mm-hmm. while watching The Crown, the fifth season of The Crown. I'm finally getting around to that. Okay. So there's a bunch of Nolan things or just a lot of things that I'm reminded of. But the very first episode, you get Elizabeth Debicki, who's playing Princess Diana. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's on a yacht, stuck in a loveless relationship. So very, very much tenant vibes there. And oh yeah. Then <laughs> in the third episode, they highlight Dodi Fayed, who if anyone doesn't remember or or know, he was dating Diana when they both died in the car crash in nineteen ninety seven. But mm-hmm. I didn't know he was a film producer, including one of his first movies that he helped fund was Chariots of Fire. So in this oh, episode of The that. Crown, yeah, they show they have a scene where he's telling his dad, who's Mohammed Al-Fayed, I want to be a movie mm-hmm. producer. And they cut to the next scene and it's on a beach. And you get all these guys dressed in white shirts and shorts running. And I was like, oh, wow, this is very traits of fiery. And <laughs> then it turns out, what no, they're showing in this episode of The Crown them filming the beach scene. And <laughs> I started laughing because I was like, oh, okay. That's funny. And uh, then also... That episode has a lot of strong connections to Edward VIII, the Duke of Windsor, uh, who's the one who abdicated in favor of marrying Wallace Simpson, the divorced American. That's why he couldn't stay king Mm. at the Mm. time. The church wouldn't allow it. A big uproar. But also in Chariots of Fire, the Prince of Wales shows up. And the Prince of Wales at the time, in 1924, was Edward. So another... Over the past week and a half, I've had a lot of moments where I'm just like, wow, everything, everything's coalescing. And finally, the episode I watched tonight, episode seven, Prince William starts his time at Eton, which is actually where they filmed Chariots of Fire because Cambridge didn't let them film. So I recognized oh. when they pulled up to drop William off at school. And so just everything with the crown is just meshing into the the Nolan universe I've been immersed in for the past several months now. Nice. So what? That's what I'm watching. What are you watching, Jake? <laughs> I just recently watched. Um, I went home to visit my family uh, for New Year's, um, and we were, you know, you always do the kind of what uh, what movie can we watch that is good for everybody, and the whole family, and so we decided to watch Confess Fletch, which is something that I've been trying to watch uh, for a while. My dad's a pretty big Fletch fan, uh, the Chevy Chase comedy where he plays a a journalist and who gets roped into all these whodunit mysteries. And so there were two movies back in the eighties and John Hamm has taken over the role from Chevy Chase now. And it's just, it's really funny. He has not really gotten a lot of good chance to showcase his comedic chops really a lot, even though he, whenever he does, he's really good at it. Parks Um, and Rec and Bridesmaids are the two things. I Bridesmaids. Yeah. And then um, what unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and there's some other ones. Every time he hosts Saturday Night Live, he's just game for whatever and always a, a joy to watch. But it, it's really funny. It's also got Roy Wood Jr. in it. Just a lot of really like good, quick, rapid-fire dialogue. I haven't laughed out loud that much at a comedy in a really long time, and that's streaming on Showtime if you want to go check that out. I think it's available for like other VOD purchases, but I'm not sure. Um, and then on the reading front, completely different from anything that we really talk about on this podcast, I finally finished The Green Mile by Stephen King. And the way I read it was the uh, he initially released it like serial style 
like Dickens used to. Um, and so it's like broken up into six little mini booklets. Interesting. Um, yeah. And so I started reading that like the beginning of last year, I think. <laughs> and like, I just was kind of like would read whenever I get a chance and finally right. finished it. I've never seen the movie, but. Oh, really? I feel like it's Yeah. Um, wow. And I'm pretty sure the ending is the same, but the um, it's a lot darker of a, an ending than uh, I had thought was going to happen. <laughs> But uh, I enjoyed that. I'm, I'm going to go find the movie and watch that now uh, just to see how it compares. But yeah, finally finished that. It took me about a year to do it, but I did it. <laughs> well, good. Yeah, the movie is really great. I like the movie a lot. I haven't read the book, but I like I uh, Shawshank the a lot, which Frank Bar- Darabont also did. And so, right, right. We'll if you like the Shawshank, which I mean, <laughs> of course, who, who doesn't? Exactly. <laughs> Uh, you're going to like The Green Mile. Nice. All right. Well, this uh, this is not a uh, Fletch and Stephen King podcast. This is a Christopher Nolan podcast. So we are talking about Chariots of Fire today as a, an influence on The Prestige. And then the book that The Prestige is based on, also called The Prestige by Christopher Priest. Um, and so give us a little rundown of... I mean, obviously, we chose The Prestige because it's the book that it's the movie is based on. Yeah, so but, uh, Yeah, give us uh, some insight as to why Chariots of Fire is relevant here, Marshall. Yeah, the primary reason we selected Chariots of Fire was that Christopher Nolan in The Nolan Variations mentions at one point in the chapter where they discuss The Prestige primarily, he has a quote, he brings up that one of the difficulties of the film, The Prestige, is that it was so truly balanced between them which is Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman's characters, that it's fallen out of favor as a story model, but Chariots of Fire has that. In truth, it's a false choice. You have to be both men or you have to find a way to be both or try to because they're not opposites. They're different facets of the same thing. Or as we might say, as we like to always talk about on this podcast, flip sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. So Chariots of Fire has that two protagonists who kind of have equal weight. There's not really one who's more top billing than the other. I suppose you could say. And so we talked about that, the two of us, and we thought, hey, seems like a pretty good one to watch, mainly for that aspect. And then more of us on a secondary level earlier in the book when they are talking about like the first chapter, sort of like a, a mini biography talking about Nolan's time at boarding school. And they talk about just the extreme Britishness of it. And I think Nolan says it, it's literally like Chariots of Fire. It's the film that he says best sums up his school days with Cambridge and the, all the hoity-toity things to do yeah. with that life and chapel and the bells ringing and everything like that. And of course, the score. The score was very formative, and that's one of the ones he would listen to all the time at boarding school. You know, mm-hmm. the synthesizer and the orchestra combo and Tom Jones has provided the model for all the scores that Hans Zimmer would compose for Nolan in the years to come. So... Felt like this was a good place to insert that one. So now we're, we're going to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you can, you're probably hearing that score in your head right now. It's been uh, often imitated and made fun of, but never duplicated. So uh, we'll get not. more into that here in a little bit. 
And as always, uh, we are going to be discussing Chariots of Fire and the Prestige in length. So if you have not seen Chariots of Fire yet, the movie came out in 1981, but this was the first time that I saw it. So if you don't want it to be spoiled, skip ahead and uh, come right back here in a little bit after you have either finished that movie or, uh, you know, taken some time out to read the book. Extreme, right. extreme recommendation to read the book before listening to this. Uh, uh, yeah, definitely. We will yes. get to. Yes. All right. And now that you are back, I will. Uh, Marshall has mercifully uh, attempted that he was going to be the one to take a crack at trying to summarize the prestige book. So I will do Chariots of Fire real quick. This was released in 1981. Directed by Hugh Hudson, starring Ben Cross, Ian Charlson, Nicholas Farrell. Released in color, is 125 minutes long. Picked up uh, four Academy Awards. I'm seeing right here. It got Best Picture, Best Costume Design, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Director. Or excuse me, Original Screenplay and Best Director. Um, yeah, best Score. And, oh, Score. Excuse me. God, not Director. I am all over the place. Uh, score. Yes, obviously that Score. Um, Naturally. Yes. And the IMDb synopsis. Uh, Two British track athletes, one a determined Jew and the other a devout Christian, are driven to win in the 1924 Olympics as they wrestle with issues of pride and conscience. And so we just uh, said earlier here that that was the first time I had seen it. It's the first time you saw it. Uh, So how did you watch it? Did you find it online or did you find uh, a copy of it somewhere? This is the first time in a while I'd had to rent the movies, one of the movies Mm -hmm. for the podcast. I just watched, said, nope, out of luck. Had to pay some money for it. So, yep. so I did. I uh, watched, I think, just through Amazon Prime video. They had it for rental, and I watched it that way. And, yeah, I mean, in so many words, I I liked it quite a bit. Yeah, I, uh, I ended up having to just, like, I bit the bullet and paid the five bucks to buy it on iTunes. Um, right. There should really be, like, a, a way to find like oscar winning movies just on a i mean we have just watched but you'd think that all of those would be more readily available since their whole deal is supposedly careful this is how we we'll end up with film. oscars plus this is how we end up with oscars plus and i mean academy of motion pictures arts and science the, and streaming service the the rights issues are going to be too much for that especially now that we've got <laughs> into streaming services submitting stuff for oscars which i don't understand why apple tv has not released coda as like a dvd or anything but that it's a whole other conversation that's not relevant right now. Anyway, um, <laughs> I liked it, but I also feel like it's very much like an Oscars movie, especially for the the eighties. Um, I think if you it didn't have that score, it wouldn't have stood out as much. A little bit. Uh, I feel like that score is doing a lot of heavy lifting, uh, just in terms of how memorable it is and how much it impacts your viewing experience. But that also might just be like me watching it after seeing so many movies parody it or make reference to it all the time. Um, right. Yeah. But uh, we can get more into how we felt about it in a little bit, but for a more detailed breakdown of the plot. Um, so like we said earlier, there's two runners. One's Jewish. The other one's devout Christian. Eric Little, he was a Christian born to Scottish missionaries in China. Um, And then they go back to Scotland um, and his whole thing is he sees his running and his athleticism as a way to give God glory and a way to worship 
him in his own way and a way to kind of spread the good news through that uh, so that he can be an example of creation to other people. But on the flip side of that, he is a very devout person, so he does not run on Sundays and he doesn't compete. He doesn't train. He doesn't do anything to do with running on the Sabbath. And then the other guy that this follows, Harold Abrahams, is dealing. This is set in 19, 1920s. Uh, they're training for the 1924 Paris Olympics. And so coming off of World War One, you've got a lot of uh, xenophobia, a lot of anti-Semitism. And so Harold is dealing with class bias, anti-Semitism, a bunch of stuff going on there. But he still is wanting to prove that he's he's better than everyone and prove that he's the best. Uh, and they end up both going to Cambridge and competing against each other there. And then they both end up going to the Olympics together. And it shows uh, how both of them approach that quest uh, for glory on the track. And uh, so if Eric's got the whole, uh, you know, I don't run on Sundays thing, Harold's thing is he has to fight with the headmaster and the other people at the school because he has an Italian, half Italian, half Arab trainer. um, And they don't like the way that that looks because they're racist. And and the values of amateurism. Yes. Yeah. His trainer played by good old Bilbo Baggins himself, Ian Holm. Yeah. uh, Picked up a best supporting actor nomination for this. He's in this movie for like seven total minutes, probably. But he's one of the best parts of it. He's amazing. He is. Yeah, he's really good. The We can talk about the moment toward the end that I, I think we're both thinking of. But And he also, um, Harold is so just like driven to win on the track that he neglects pretty much everything, including his romantic prospects, just so that he can get there. And so his story is the will they want their relationship with um, a girl that he meets in college uh, who is a singer. And so then the movie just shows how they continue to train individually as they prepare for the Olympics. And it kind of like builds up what I thought was going to happen was it was building up to like a race between the two of them in the Olympics. And that right. was when we were going to get like the, the classic, the, do, 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 the, the score moment. <laughs> um, but this is based off of a true story and that never happened. What actually happens is they go to the Olympics, Harold wins gold. And then, there's a whole big to do with Eric about the event that he qualifies for. hundred meters. Yeah. Is going to be run on a Sunday and he decides that he's not doing that because that's goes against his religion. And then they work out a whole deal where instead of running on Sunday, he's going to swap with someone else on his team to run the 400 instead a day later in order to run while also staying true to his religion um, and so he goes, he wins, and everything's good, and everyone's happy. They never play each other in Olympic competition, <laughs> uh, but right. they, they they both end up uh, achieving their goal. So the the conflict here, unlike the prestige, is much more internal, like in themselves. There's a lot of talk about how the you you find the will to continue from within yourself, and the the fire to carry on, especially with Eric comparing running to you know like keeping the faith like that bible verse um mm-hmm. running your and, race. Uh, yes yeah. so it's there i kept thinking there was going to be like more conflict between the two of them like there was when they raced each other in school 
but no, it was just a, a good kind of like you see parallel tracks of yeah, because the descriptions of this everywhere I see it, you know, whether it's on the streaming services or what, made it sound like they're going to be at each other's throats, and that's right, not what it is at all. And also, I feel like I'm your fact check service this whole episode right now. But uh, Eric Little didn't go to Cambridge; he went to the University oh, of Edinburgh, yeah, and yeah, he yeah, he joined the yeah. Scottish. That's right. Track team yeah, essentially and went on the circuit. Yeah. Went in everything. Anyway. Yeah. But sorry. But yeah, it was very yes. much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's all good. <laughs> all these but, white people, all these British people look the same. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's what all the Chinese thought when Eric Little was uh, <laughs> doing his missionary work over there. <laughs> but yeah, it was very, very much. Uh, what did I say? It was nice to see those stories as parallels instead of. They're trying to like sabotage each other or, or go all aggro, as yeah. they say. And that room allowed the film to show you the different lenses of their obsession because they're both obsessed with winning. But it, yeah, it's very much different, uh, different reasons for doing so. Little wants to win for the glory of God. Abrams wants to prove everybody wrong and show them that mm-hmm. he belongs. Yeah. So... Which is yeah. a very, you know, Nolan obsession, a very Nolan concept. Right, right. And it does, you can see a little bit how that, you can draw the lines to to Alfred Borden and Robert Angier in the in the film, The Prestige, mm-hmm. where like the strain on the relationships, you know, Alfred Borden has a really tough yeah. time with the ladies in his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what, what does Nolan say about it? kind of with with his film versions of Borden and Angier. You know, there's like Borden has a deeper appreciation of magic that Angier doesn't have. But Angier understands mm-hmm. like the performance aspect, you know, the nature of magic, how you can make people believe there's more. So right. Borden's kind of more like an Abrams kind of guy where he just he's so smart and cerebral about magic and trying to make the best illusion of things. And I wouldn't say Andrew's more of a little guy in the film, but it's not just all about the magic and the running. It's about something more in that regard. Right. Right. And that's what you have here. But besides that, because I, I think we're going to get through this one pretty quickly because man, that book, whew, I'll talk about, but yeah, earlier you mentioned the score doing a lot of heavy lifting. I agree about how amazing it is. Like it's, it's incredible because like, and I it see makes why me, he was listening to it all the time, you know? Yeah. And it makes me kind of sad that, just the theme of it just become a cliche or a joke because it is outstanding. I was blown away. And actually you sent me a vinyl of it for my birthday mm-hmm. yeah. uh, last year. And God, I was like, okay, yeah. Like I never really thought of that. I, it was a, a really thoughtful thing. And so the first time I spun it up, I was expecting, you know, it was like an original copy. It looks like from, from the early eighties. And all the records back then are really thin and stuff, born mm-hmm. of the oil crisis from the 70s. <laughs> you know, record companies cut down on, well, to use less oil so you keep making records. They're all flimsy, right. like little Frisbees, which means I was expecting, you know, the sound quality to be not as good because deeper records mean you can get deeper grooves, which means better fidelity. But mm-hmm. I put this thing on and it just like blasted me through the room. I was it just, it sounded amazing. And I'd never really heard it in that way before. And ever since that, moment i you know like yeah, they make the, good the idea of it that i had in my head before as being this cliche thing has i've been disabused of that notion 
So I'm just really, it's just really sad how just, I think we just got over the holidays and I forgot until I think I saw your review of the, your latest review of the live action Grinch about, <laughs> yeah, during like the who, hubilation, uh, yeah. they have the Grinch running oh, and yes, pop in the do. chariots of fire yep. theme and, you know, yep. just makes me roll my eyes. I'm like, ah, does this have to be the byword? Because in the context of the film, man, it just, that opening scene, the bookend of the film running on the beach, it's, uh, it's really iconic and really gives you those movie chills. Yeah. And the, um, cause I think the, sadly, the thing I think of when I hear this song is not this movie, it's Talladega Nights, which just relentlessly makes fun of it. And it's the um, two, it's right. the, the ending scene where Will, Will Ferrell and Sasha Baron Cohen are now on, you foot that. on a NASCAR right. track running mm-hmm. toward the end. But, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed that. I think that, and I enjoyed the two like main central performances the most out of this whole thing. But my next question for you is because like, I don't know if you did this in college or not, and I don't know if you've done it at all since then. But do you like run regularly at all? Yeah, I tried to keep up with running a little bit. Yeah, because I I ran like all throughout high school, um, and did it I did it competitively in high school, and then like recreationally in college a little bit, and now like I have completely fallen off the bandwagon, and it will probably take me like fifteen minutes to run a mile at this point. But I really connected with Little's whole thing. I really liked the uh, the voiceover montage at the end when he doing when he's doing his final race about just you know how when he the the images of him just like completely like losing himself like while he's running like the face acting in that scene really does yeah. give a, a good indication as to like what's going on in his head like he's just completely like there is nothing going on he's just running with his voiceover about how he really like he does it purely to to give something back to this god that has given him the ability to run so fast and i was just like that's a really it's a good way of looking at it. Like you hear about like, you know, the runner's high all the time, which has only happened to me like twice, but that was clearly like a good film translation of that type of thing. And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like running too. Maybe my feelings about running are one small reason why I like the film. And also in contrast to what seems to be the general opinion on letterbox but i'll get to that <laughs> a little bit yeah <laughs> most people think like running's crazy why would you do that but i don't feel that way same thing about the movie here but have you ever read once a runner i have not it's it's kind of it goes into kind of that same thing like why would you want to like subject yourself to that it's about a guy trying to like run the first like sub four minute mile so it's a while ago but right um it's it's pretty good. It gets into like the whole like spiritual aspect of it. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's good exercise and and it makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. But some other Nolan connections type things that I noted down here were obviously the as we think we said the boarding school vibes. You've got the yes. chapel and, yeah. and the hymns sure. and all the architecture mm-hmm. and just how incredibly incredibly British it is. You know, for the glory so, of so British of the empire, but he does also Christopher Nolan talk about how subversive of a movie it is. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that one. Yeah, I noted that and too. I do agree because some other people on Letterboxd who like the film noted this as well. But 
you know, it says Harold Abrams is kind of a good old boy with the schooling. He's gone to Eton and then is it Eton? No, there's another, it's another school, another boarding school and then Cambridge. And even within that world, yeah, he's an outsider because he's Jewish and trying to kind of punch up from where he is. And then also Eric Little just making a stand against the pressure of like, there's literally a scene where he's sitting in the room with the monarchy and some British mm-hmm. aristocrats telling him, no, like what? it's an admirable stand, but you've got to run because he's a favorite in the hundred meters. He's, he's one of the few people who has a hope against the, <laughs> the sinister Americans, the, mm-hmm. the professionally those, trained those Americans. Americans, but he literally sits in the room with the future King of England and, is really angry lords and he says yeah. no i'm not gonna do that i'm sorry i've like i've really thought about this and searched my conscience, but i'm not gonna mm-hmm. not gonna against my faith there's like that discussion that they have in that scene of one of the lords is like no it's it's really admirable but it's country then god and little says nope that's not how it is and so yeah like just the way these two guys fight against the the ceiling of the british establishment and the fact that they're always going to be outsiders in some way right, is throughout that, the whole thing. And of course, Eric Little is Scottish too. And, <laughs> you know. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's all you need to say yeah. about that. And then plenty of the identity fodder, you know, with uh, how Nolan talked about his struggles. Like, am I British? Am I American? And same as with Harold Abrams and how he talks about his father and trying to fit in as, as Englishmen. And then finally, like the, the start of the film, you got that flashback with, you know, the, it's kind of the framing device. It starts with the memorial service for Harold Abrams in 1978, I think, yeah. when, when he finally dies. And extremely, extremely high Lawrence of Arabia vibes, because that's how Lawrence of Arabia opens with. Oh, really? With Lawrence's funeral. Um, yeah. Have you seen Lawrence of Arabia? No, I've been waiting oh. to so that I can like properly see that in a theater. Yes. Every time so there's that's like how a, it's meant to be seen. Yeah. Every time there's like a 35 millimeter or 70 millimeter something like that runs through, I try to see it, but I haven't had time for it yet. But yeah, I want to like plop down in a theater and wholly devote myself to it for however long it takes. It's the four hours is worth it. Yeah. I'll tell you that. So you're making a good choice. I mean, as to, if you can, if he's watched it on TV, do it. But of course, you don't get the full effect of it until you right, see it right. Like I've um, seen certain scenes, like I've seen the the match cut that's like literally like lighting a match that then yep. like it becomes the sun, right? Yeah, it is um, a literal match cut. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I thought was pretty. I think I saw that at a class in college. Uh, so I've seen certain things, but haven't seen the full thing. So yeah. someday it's on my my right. list to get to. Yeah. Well, the opening of Lawrence Arabia is it shows him dying in a motorcycle crash and then cuts to his memorial service outside. I can't remember if it's St. Paul's, but it's a church Mm -hmm. in England. And then a couple people are discussing Lawrence outside the church. And then another person overhears and is like, wait a minute, he's a he's a hero. And someone says, no, that's not what I that's not what I heard. And. So then it cuts, Ooh, it flashes back nice. to World War One, and then you see the start of Lawrence's uh, story. You. So that's pretty much exactly how this movie starts too. <laughs> <laughs> and so flashbacks, British stuff, British Empire, all that there. 
Christopher Nolan. Profit. <laughs> <laughs> Is there uh, anything else you had to say about this? I have a few more points to get through, but just um, overall impressions. Overall, like I'm not as down on it as everything that I saw on Letterboxd, but I do kind of just feel like I was, and I don't know, maybe if I had seen it when it came out, I would have been all over it like the Academy was. I feel like everyone's mad at it on Letterboxd because it beat Raiders of the Lost Ark for best picture. But like, yeah, historically, the Academy has never gone for genre and will go for historical drama every single time. So, yeah, it's not like, surprising. It's not, it's not this movie's fault. Like, no, if, if that's the reason people are mad at it, it's I'm sorry, it's dumb. Like Raiders is, of course, an amazing film. But if you're putting stock into the awards like that, it's nice to see a film you love get to win. But ultimately, it's it's just an award. It's not it doesn't change yeah. what the film and means like, to you. So and maybe yeah. I wonder if it never won Best Picture, if it wouldn't have that reputation. People would be like, oh, it, it's underrated and it should have won more. But who knows? Right. Um, right. I do like the uh, the quote that he gave about how the story model of two people like a, a two hander type movie has been kind of out of vogue. But they're like we say, two sides of the same coin. But I haven't really seen a lot of movies that have been like that lately. Besides Prestige, I think uh, the closest one to that this past year was Banshees of Inisherin. The only other closest comparison to this I can see is Rush. Did you ever see that one? With um, um, I haven't seen it. But that's about uh, Chris Hemsworth, and yeah, it's uh, I think F one racing. Could be wrong, but it's, it's Nikki Lauda. And- yeah, it's Nikki Lauda and um. What's the American's name? I should know this um, too, but I don't. I can't remember. Um, but no, that's like a, a really good two-hander type movie where it's, you know, the one person is racing because, you know, he's analytical. He wants to be the best driver. He want, he knows everything like that. And then the other one is just like, I want to be the best, but also I'm going to have fun and it's going to be crazy and it's going to be wild. And how the both of them kind of complement each other and never really stop kind of like a Mozart Salieri thing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, don't really see these kinds a lot anymore. I feel like we could do that a little bit more, but then you got to have two strong performances. So it's got to search for good lead actors there. Yeah. Good shout out for Amadeus, which also one of my favorite movies. Fantastic Man, movie. What a great one. Yeah. I don't, I also, I didn't get all the hate for this on Letterboxd. I pulled it up after I watched Chariots of Fire and, wasn't expecting people to say it's the greatest movie ever or anything, but the most popular reviews, the top three are like three stars or lower and yeah. people really hate it. That's the impression you get from reading the most popular reviews. I can see why plenty of people wouldn't like it just on its own. But for me personally, like it really did move me. Like all the Vangelis score moments gave me chills. Yeah. And yeah. everyone's like, this is such a boring movie. It's a boring movie. I didn't find it boring at all. It flew by for me. And also on a side, like, I don't know if, why people are complaining about boring movies when the sight and sound poll, the newest, greatest movie of all time, Jean Dillman, is that how you say it? Mm. Which, like, all the oh, five-star reviews yeah. of that that I've read, yeah, I haven't watched it yet, but they're saying, like, this film is boring as hell, but, it, like, it's amazing, which it's fine. Like, that can be the case. And as, from what I understand, that's the whole point. But yeah, I'm just saying, like, using something being boring as a cudgel to hit it with, not necessarily. I mean, I guess there's different types of boring, but 
I mean, yeah, let's, yeah. anyway, <laughs> but it's also, I, I mean, I really enjoyed it and I probably liked it so much because it's one of those, it felt to me like one of the movies that my dad would come and always like show me, he'd walk in a room sometime and be like, here, let's watch this movie. And he just put mm-hmm. something on that I'd never heard of, whatever. And he had a really strong knack for picking something that like I always seem to love and a couple of the standouts that he did this with were dead poet society. He just came home when they just boom, popped it in and showed it to me and blew my doors off. And then another one was breaker Morant, which was actually another um, film from around this time, 1980, an Australian picture about three soldiers in the Boer war, Australians who got singled out by the British to kind of be scapegoats for some war crimes so that they could get some peace talks rolling with the Boers. And anyway, so it's very much another anti-establishment film from people formerly of the empire. And anyway, check that one out. Yeah. So I have like these format of experiences with my dad doing this. And this movie was a dead ringer. I had, we never did Jared Sapphire. This is the first time I saw it, but this is, I can Mm -hmm. easily imagine in my head, Mandela affecting myself to have this be one that my dad showed to me and did this with. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good, it's a good film. It's got a great score. It's got great performances. There's some really good camera work. I mean, obviously the beach score, but some tracking shots in this are really great. And I really like how it edited the races because with something so ephemeral as the hundred meters, how do you do that? And I like what they did, like, with the very last 100 meter race with Harold winning gold, it has just a long shot mm-hmm. of them running. And then the race is over and Harold's just bent over contemplating what it all means. And then it cuts back basically a replay. And then it's close up on him in slow motion while he's running. And I just thought that was a good, good choice. And the editing of that is kind of what they do throughout. And I liked it, you know? So I know how it made me feel, but I just don't get some of the vehemence, but I think you really hit upon it. It's more like, oh, this beat Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. That's not, the film didn't do that. <laughs> that's not the film's fault. Other yeah. people made that choice. Anyway, but if people don't want to like it, again, that's, if it didn't make them feel that way, that's okay too. That's why we're doing oh. this. I guess we can do the Letterboxd review since we're talking around it so much. And then yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> before, you know, we're sitting here like, what do we do now? That's right. Letterboxd. All right. I'll go first. I got them pulled go up here. It. I got a silly one and a serious one. The silly one <laughs> is from a person named Dermot Arnold. And it says, a film so English, there's a scene where they all sing about how English they are. No chariots were set on fire during the making of this film. <laughs> and that's right. a one-star <laughs> review. Um, yeah, <laughs> it, there is a very English song there, um, and the serious one kind of gets the song. More... Actually, the song is "He's an Englishman." <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think is yeah. what we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The serious one that I that I really liked uh, has no star rating to it, but it's from uh, Alan Suppenwall. He's a Ooh. TV critic for Rolling Stone. He's a great, great critic. Yes, and then he says the same thing that I said about the Vangelis score during a lot of heavy lifting for it. But he makes a good point where he says, um, he talks about how 
it's not that the movie is bad. He was engaged throughout and everything, but he says it's a movie that's made up more of moments, like Lord Lindsay using champagne glasses to measure his work on the hurdles, or Harold's coach Sam enjoying his player's success away from the stadium. It works more as a more than that as a whole movie. And while I don't necessarily agree with that, I do think there are a lot of just like good moments. And here, the hurdle moment is one of them that I thought was pretty good when I first saw it, where he puts the glasses on the hurdle and he wants uh, to know if a single drop comes out if he touches Mm -hmm. the hurdle when he trains. Um, And the moment where Sam is watching from the hotel room as he waits for the the race to end after everything, just that I really like that moment a lot. And I thought Ian Holm did a great job for that. And then then, then he hears the anthem. That's how he knows one. Yeah. Like punches the hole through his he hat. He punches his hat. Oh, what a what a good <laughs> moment. Yeah. So yeah, it's made up of a lot of good moments, and I think that they do form a good whole movie, but yeah. So yeah, I, I thought it was really cohesive. I mean, I'm practically gushing by comparison of I think the average <laughs> view of this. But the reviews that I have is uh first one is from Matt at Matt Wallace 314. A film mostly about a guy who's good at running, learning how to be good at running. That's how you get better at running. That's how you be the best yeah. runner. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, it's that one. Um, I thought it was nice. And then, again, a more, more serious one, but a four and a half star review that caught my eye and had a, a couple of sentiments that I probably echoed already here, but I was kind of just scrolling the popular reviews and took me along. This was, I think, was the first like seriously positive one I got to. And so I really appreciated it. Uh, So it's a little lengthy, but I highlighted some extracts. And the review is from the user Albie Hay, who is at Hay, H-A-Y, Al, 12. (laughs) And he writes kind of what you said about, you know, the Oscar success. He said, if the film hadn't taken home four statues, I'm sure it wouldn't be nearly as sneered at as it currently is. Yeah. And said Every time I watch it, I'm confronted with a film that is moving in its conviction. Now, I've only seen it once, but I feel like I might have that same sentiment on a revisit. So I'll, I'll let you know if that happens anytime soon. <laughs> and uh, it's a story about taking advantage of one's own inner strength and holding to one's principles through thick and thin. The film also has a word to say about class and British society. Both Abrams and Little have run-ins with the establishment and both expose the fusty attitudes and practices that constrain them and others in their endeavors. So I just thought those couple of points is good to bring out instead of all the, as you scroll through the reviews, like, it's boring, it's too British. Sure, I guess if you don't like those things, then yeah, I guess it's not for you. But I really agree. And I feel like this movie had something to say and I thought it said it well. So so thank you, Albie, for putting some of those thoughts down really well. And that's Chariots of Fire. Now, it's time. Oh, man. More just just the I'm getting the heebie jeebies just thinking about it (laughs) (laughs) to talk about the prestige, the novel by Christopher Priest. Are you ready for this? Yes. All right. Well, it was released in 1995, written by Christopher Priest. I can't remember what number novel of his it is, but he I think he started around the 80s. Yeah. So. This was 95 and Goodreads just pulls like 
summaries from the back of the books, which are much too long to read here. So I just pulled the Wikipedia one sentence description. It tells the story of a prolonged feud between two stage magicians in late 1800s England. That's a pretty simple way of saying it. That's the that's the too long to read. That's the yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm very bare bones. (laughs) Yeah. And so I believe neither of us had read this before. Is that correct? No, and I didn't actually didn't even know that it was a book until like a few years ago when I saw it in a bookstore and thought that it was like a a novelization. Didn't realize it was actually a book before the movie. Right. I can't remember if I knew it was a book from the first time I saw The Prestige, but I'd known it was a book for a while and it's sort of kind of always been on the on the to read list and now we're finally doing it. So yeah, just checked it out on the digital library and read it on my Kindle. And I think I'll definitely want be wanting to get a physical copy of this because man, I wonder if book ruled. Yeah. If we, Cause that's how I read it too, was on a, a digital copy. My biggest thing is I want to know if there are any like significant font changes throughout the whole thing, because there was definitely a moment in the Borden diary section where, and I knew this because I'd seen the movie, but I saw some a couple sentences and I was like, I wonder if this is written in a different font or like a different handwriting look because I think I know where this is going, but it's hard mm, to tell right. on the typeset on the Kindle. But yeah, um, yeah. Usually they do an okay job of changing things if something's supposed to be different, but that is a good point. And I also wish I had a physical copy, honestly, just to flip back and check some other things from earlier. Oh yeah, my... Along. And the, I was like, the yeah, notes. I don't have time for that. The notes <laughs> and the highlights Kindle. section that I have for this book on the Kindle file for it. It's like I have highlighted and noted so many things on this just to make sure that I was like, wait, is this what they said on the last one? I was like cross checking and corroborating stuff. And right, right. Oh, man. Well, before we dive into the full discussion, I'm going to, as you already said, I am going to do my level best. I'm going to try <laughs> to. Good luck. Relatively briefly summarize this book. And I'm going to try to do it by talking about each section and sequence and summarizing it. So it's split into five sections. And the first is about a character named Andrew Wesley, who is a journalist in the mid 90s. So it's kind of set at the time the book was released uh, when it starts out. And he is on his way from London to rural England to look into a story. And it turns out the story he has been tipped off about, it was a false tip and he meets the person who gave him the false tip. And she says she lives on this estate where most of the main house has been rented out to a religious sect. But this lady named, uh, she's Lady Catherine Angier, lives in Caldlow House in Derbyshire and she's called in there because she says, Oh, we've actually had uh, like, you've been here before. You don't remember. You don't remember when we were kids. And he says, no, I can't remember. I was two years old. I can't from the time you're describing, I don't remember this at all. So he's about to blow it off. He's like, I don't know why you brought me here, but then she gets his attention by saying, do you have a twin brother? And he freezes and he's like, all right, now, how did you know I've always like felt like I had a twin brother? Because before he arrives, it's told in first person and he's talking about how like I've had this irrevocable belief that I have a twin brother somewhere. And that's kind of been 
the quest of his life because he's he's adopted and he knows his birth name and that who is legally who his parents were but he doesn't care about his past because they gave him up for adoption and that sense of abandonment and he has no interest in anything to do with that except for trying to find out who his twin brother was because he says he feels that psychic connection and his birth name on the official records is Nicholas Borden so mm-hmm. right from the start we get introduced to the Borden and Angier not through the magicians from the 19th century but between two of their ancestors so Wesley Andrew Wesley sits in sticks around to hang around with uh, Lady Catherine who prefers to be called Kate and they start going through some artifacts from the great Danton aka Rupert in this book Angier uh, who was a famous stage magician from the late 19th century and so we get to the end of this it's essentially an introduction and then the next segment is actually a reproduction quote unquote story within a story of Alfred Borden's mm. book that he wrote on magic and was released at the turn of the 20th century. And in it, Alfred Borden tells his story of being a essentially a carpenter growing up, apprentice to be a carpenter, got really interested in magic and uh, went off to London to join the theater scene and try to get a career as a magician all the while working as a stagehand because he had a marketable skill as a carpenter and he goes into his philosophy of magic and his illusions and he's talking about the principles and fundamentals of magic and it's somewhat there's some really weird narration this because he says he's talking about like do i dare say this and it's like yes i agree i I will allow myself to say it and If this is the first time reading it without having seen the film, it would be a little confusing. But if you're informed by the movie, then you know that, oh, it must obviously it's it's both twins writing it because mm-hmm. from the film, we know that Borden is uh, lives a double life because he's actually two different people. Although so, the first person singular. Exactly. First person singular. Yeah. And he's talking about how he has like this pact with himself that if I mention something, then yes, I will elaborate on it and talk about it and I won't strike it from these pages. So Borden talks about like his theories and his principles and things of magic. And then it's weaved in there with some autobiography, which is how he tells his side of the story of his feud with Angier, which from his perspective starts out, Rupert Angier was a spiritist. So a magician who used his skills mm-hmm. to make people think he could talk to the other side. And Borden doesn't like this because he says like it's it's using magic to make people think you're actually you know, a sorcerer or something. But that's a betrayal of magical principles, essentially. So mm-hmm. he just attacked. Exactly. This, uh, he comes upon Angier just by accident. He's the first spiritist that Borden encounters through a family member did a seance and he went to support her and then he finds out who Angier was and finds where he's doing another seance and he messes it up, tries to expose him as a fraud and it goes very badly. And Borden gets thrown out and he's remorseful and he's like, you know, actually, maybe this wasn't the best idea. Maybe I was just being too, maybe that was a mistake. And then he eventually writes a letter to Angier apologizing because Borden thought, well, what really was the harm in what he was doing because he saw how distraught the family was at the Mm -hmm. seance that he broke into. 
Yeah. Um, and he's like, well, he's giving them comfort and he's just doing these things. So he kind of apologizes, but never gets a response. And he says, well, that essentially pissed me off. And the, just the Jordan meme, right? And I felt, <laughs> yeah, I felt offended by that. I took that personally. And that's, you know, that's how we, the feud continues. Um, I think then Borden goes and messes up one of Angier's shows again. And then it just becomes a, a retaliatory thing. Angier then comes to mess with Borden shows mm-hmm. and Borden has some moments where like, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't be, this is ridiculous. Maybe I should just, we could, should try to reconcile. Yeah. And eventually it gets to the point. And of course, during this, Borden talks about his trick, the transported man and the new transported man and describes how he does this illusion of teleportation, essentially. And it's what he gets rich and famous off of. Because he rises in the magical establishment with this trick. And he talks about how, you know, like, I'm not going to reveal, reveal the secret, of course. You know, like, I don't do that with any of my tricks to any of the people that I know. I let them know just enough to where they know how, what's supposed to happen and how they can help me. But, like, the ultimate secret of everything, I'd never reveal it to anybody. And mm-hmm. he talks about how proud he is that. I think Angier has figured out probably all the other secrets of all of my illusions, but he doesn't know this one still. And it makes him mad and it makes me really happy that he can't figure it out. And, oh, eventually, you know, Borden has a family and a wife and children. But then he also uh, at one point is looking for a new assistant and her name is Olive. And she, at her audition, basically uh, <laughs> seduces him. The oblique reference to how they end up uh, <laughs> Finishing the audition on his couch. couch. Very entertaining. (laughs) And so eventually he has, she becomes his mistress and it turns out she's a spy for Angier. And he's like, oh, okay, well, you're trying to do that to me. I'll give you something. I'll give you my secret, Angier. And he writes something and Olive takes it back to him. And then Angier's gone for a while until he resurfaces with this trick called In a Flash. And Warden's like, wait, what's this? So he goes to see it. And there's this device that spits electricity all over the stage. And Angier appears to actually teleport from the stage into the audience. And Mm -hmm. Warden is driven insane that he can't figure this out. So he goes to a performance to try to get a closer look at at the device, at the machine. He slips his way backstage through the security measures. And he's below the stage and sees where it's plugged in basically and he notices all kinds of papers and essentially fire hazards and he notices that this electrical connection is getting very very hot and so he's panicking because he genuinely thinks wait he's going to burn the theater down with this I got to do something so he unplugs it and it throws everything above on the performance into chaos and he Mm -hmm. sees Angier at the top of the stairs and essentially runs through him and escapes. And then later Borden hears that Angier has died as a result of an illusion gone wrong. The great Danton has died. But after this, apparently Borden is kind of miserable and exhausted and slumming it through the rest of his magical career. Things have really fallen off for him. And he wakes up from a nap between performances and essentially what he's described as kind of like, it's like a ghost of Angier is there with a knife trying to kill him. And he says, I didn't mean it. I'm sorry. And throws Andrew off of him or this ghost of Andrew off of him and, and escapes and gets out of there. 
And that's just about where his story wraps up, his account. And then we switch back to the next section is Kate Angie are talking about the event from the first section of the book that is implied that she saw and what happened. Essentially what happened is that her father, who was the grandson of the great Danton of Rupert Angier, they're pretty well off living at the estate. They're the, again, part of the aristocracy. And then Clive Borden, who is, I believe, the grandson of Alfred Borden, comes looking for some help or something. He arrives with his son, Nikki, and they're apparently trying to hash the feud out. Kate's describing it from the perspective of her five-year-old self, but things eventually get heated. Clive and Kate's father start shouting at each other and Angier kind of loses it and takes Borden downstairs to the family's estate's basement where this device that we recognize that Borden just described in his contemporary account is there. And Angier turns it on. He's like, this, this is what you want. This is what you want. Do you want to step into it? You want to do it? And Kate has kind of snuck down there and Clive Borden is holding his two-year-old son and this little five-year-old girl is watching like no one knows she's there. And then her father in a fit of madness grabs the two-year-old and tosses him into the device at the moment where like the supposed illusion in the great Danton's time was supposed to happen. Once that happens though, all that they see is that two-year-old Nikki is lying there dead. And it's just a completely horrible, awful scene to watch. So Kate relays the tale of that trauma. And then for pretty much, we move to the section that is the bulk of the book, which is Rupert Angier's perspective. Yeah. And it's in the form of a diary entry. So it's his diary starting in something like 1857 and 1850s. And it goes through 1904. And then we get the other perspective, which corrects or gives... Angier's take on the events between him and Borden. And the highlights of that are that he came from the aristocracy, but he was the second born, so he wasn't going to get the estate. He had to figure out how to make a living on his own. He finds magic, and his brother's a jerk. So once his father dies, Rupert knows he's not going to get anything. So he has to figure out something to do. He gets into magic. He meets another person trying to break in. They're kind of outcasts. Julia, who turned, becomes his assistant and then wife. And to try and make some money, they get into spiritism and do seances. And during the seance that Borden crashes, he throws Julia to the ground, kind of just in the panic. And it turns out at this time, Julia was pregnant. And this event causes her to miscarry, which is a huge emotional blow, of course, to their partnership. But it turns out they recovered somewhat and they do have a family and children and Angier builds up his success and eventually you know is going touring and everything and then he has a broken marriage because on a tour of the United States he went on alone he finds Olive and starts living with her he separates from his wife and then the feud with Borden continues apace and he desperately wants to figure out how Borden does the transported man trick. Cutter makes an appearance who becomes Michael Caine's character in the film and is his ingenuity. And Cutter's like, yep, it's a double. And he's like, no, it can't be. And then eventually, difference here in the book is eventually he does say like, okay, yeah, it is. A, it is a double. And he moves on. But then 
Borden spruces up the trick and it just rekindles Angier's obsession. So he sends all mm-hmm. of his spy to figure out Borden's secret. And then eventually Olive comes back and it's like, the only thing I have from you from Borden is this one clue. It's the word Tesla. So Rupert Andrew goes to seek out Nikola Tesla, which is a pretty cool segment of the book in Colorado where they try to make this machine. Andrew commissions Tesla to make a machine that will help him teleport for real life. And they eventually do that. Then it breaks there because as Andrew's about to leave Colorado, his brother dies. He becomes the inherits the title and has to go take care of the estate. He mends things with his wife because he's, you know, the estate's in disrepair. He needs money. But she, Julie's like the coolest character in this whole book. She's like the best person for the most part. She does get into the revenge and the feud a bit, but generally she's pretty awesome. And (laughs) she encourages Angier to get back into magic because he's sworn off magic because he needs to take care of the estate. But she's like, you need money. So you need to get back into it. So he does, and fortuitously, the device from Tesla got finished and got sent over to him, so he starts using it. And he gets richer than ever before using this machine, making this illusion supposedly happen where it actually does transport him. He gets transmitted through the ether, as he describes it. Like, with the only hitch being the disposal of the prestige materials, and that, Mm -hmm. uh, the latter part Mm -hmm. of the book, that's repeatedly referred to. Uh, Finally... Andrew describes what happened to him when Borden unplugged the machine. And what happened was he, he was only partially transmitted. The Andrew that was in the machine when it was unplugged still has pretty much a corporeal body, but you know, he gets extremely sick and eventually dies. And the other part of him that was partially transmitted is essentially a ghost is in essentially fit health, except he's not solid and partially invisible. So, as the, I guess you could say the, the first Angier dies, this ghost Angier has, is the one that shows up and tries to get revenge on Borden. Okay. And they, Angier fakes his death the first time, then he dies for real. And his, Angier number two, his shade essentially shows up and writes the last few diary entries for him. They, they convene and then Angier's account ends with his, his shade, his sort of like, living ghost uh, writing that I'm going to use the machine one more time and I'm going to try to do it like my final trick, my final illusion, because there's like nothing in life. There's nothing for me to do. There's no, what kind of existence is this going to be? I'm going to try to transport myself into the the body of my dead double. And I'm hoping either that I'm hoping that either resurrects him or that will also kill me too. And then we'll finally be dead. And that's what the last, entry is and then the final section titled the prestiges we are back with wesley and kate on the estate back in the 90s and he can't sleep and he's like hearing his brother talk to him like you need to come find me come find me and it's the middle of the night and he goes downstairs kate's awake and she says yeah i know like where we need to go and what you need to do but i can't do it because i can't face the trauma from my past but here's where you go and she tells him to go to the family vault so he walks across the snow in the dark to this dark family crypt where you can see all the crumbled remains of all like the ancestors and there's dust and everything. And and then he gets to a place where there's modern racks, three racks to mm-hmm. a row. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, there's lights here and it's 
all this multitude of bodies and completely preserved, not mummified or anything, could be alive bodies, except for the fact that they're dead. And they're frozen in the state that they were when they were transmitted by the machine, by the Tesla device, because they're all Angier. And they have labels and everything on them of the date and the place of the performance, uh, very well cataloged. And so every single body is Angier, except for the very last, the very end of the row, Wesley finds a two-year-old boy contorted in grotesque fashion with the label of Nicholas Julius Borden and the date that the event happened. And so uh, Wesley says, like, at the moment I picked him up, like, I didn't feel his presence anymore. Like, I didn't hear his voice anymore. And I like, knew this was the thing to do. And I had to get him out of here. But as he's trying to get out, he notices the presence of someone else alive in the cave next to the generator that's giving the whole place light. And it turns out that this Angier's ghost, his attempt to transmit himself into Angier's body didn't work. And he's been down here. It's implied that he's been down there the whole time, categorizing and keeping what are called the prestiges, the remains of these tricks. The product of a magic trick, as it's told earlier in the book, the product of a magic trick is the prestige. And these are all the prestiges of Angier's illusion. And Angier's ghost shade says essentially to Andrews, like, you're a Borden, aren't you? I wondered if you'd be coming here. I thought you'd get here at last. Now, are you going to go or are you going to stay here with me? And Wesley's already exhausted before he even gets out of this part of the cave. And then, of course... This being what it is, the generator dies and gets shut off and it's completely pitch black except for a, a weak flashlight that he has. And Wesley like struggles through, gets out of the cave, feels Angier's presence behind him. And it's completely just like nerve shredding. And he gets out of there. He gets back across to the house. He gets Nikki's body into the house and Kate's there and grabbing his arm and they turn back and they look back at the opening of the crypt like a black hole they say and it appeared that this this shadow moved out and turned away and walked off into the woods and the book ends ta-da oh man i could not put this book down no it, no i was like i devoured this book like it it's like what 360 pages and i like read it within two days it's so good and it's also just different enough from the movie where if you've seen the movie you can kind of still remember like vague plot outlines but you have no idea what's going to happen next because the story is so different yes all the big beats are there and you're like okay yeah i think i described the adaptation process of what it felt like to me is that christopher nolan jonathan nolan co-wrote the screenplay so they both kind of turned the dials and knobs mm -hmm. just right to where it just feels like kind of uh a parallel universe yeah like this could be the direct adaptation in a, in a slightly different way and you know get your portal gun from rick and morty and you're and you're there <laughs> so like i knew the the big secrets which help inform my knowledge but oh. it was different enough to where it kept me like oh wow okay yeah, what is happening next i want to know i can't stop so as my dad always said the book for this is easily better than the movie like the story is better 
I know you can't fit that into one film. Like that's the very definition of an adaptation. But, yeah. But I mean, I like the movie the... is still great, but this is just, man, the depth and layering and the levels it's able to achieve is because it's a book and it it's so good. It's so good. I like them both for different reasons. I think right. like one of the notes that I took um, right at the beginning when he's talking about how he feels like he has a twin brother and he feels his presence and there's all this stuff happening. And then it goes to kind of his history with everything. I was like, yeah, there's no way this was going to be like a one-to-one adaptation with this. Like, how do you do this and make it palatable for a studio film? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like the film wisely excised the, the later part the, the contemporary part, I think, you know, yeah. for example, I think I'll talk more about the film adaptation itself when we actually get there but just yeah. some choices like that i think very well cold mm-hmm. for sure and i really liked the um i liked how oh i mean i this is like a perfect nolan book to be adapted into a movie um, yes i called it nolan catnip nolan catnip yes. everywhere because this thing is like it's a story within a frame story within a diary within lead. And then sometimes in the diary, there's stuff that he's talking about how he read something or read another diary. So it's all like, there's so many different layers that go all the way down with it that I'm sure he read this and was like, Oh my gosh, this is great. And like, there's so many double switchbacks for time, like timelines and conflicting events like i was constantly going back and forth checking to see if one person's account of one event added up to the other person's account but then i was like is that person a double who's remembering something or is this his one of the prestiges that's remembering something to to try to make sure that everything matched up correctly and it also Um, turns out that we find out at the end of angier's account that borden's book is actually it's doubly false so you know Borden's book has like the obfuscation of him being a twin, but then Angier eventually gets Borden's diary through Olive because she's in trouble because one of the Borden twins died apparently of a heart attack and she's trying to sell it and make some money so she can provide her own defense because no one believes her because of course, since no one knows Borden's a twin, they don't believe it's like, they're like, wait, no, he's actually alive. What are you talking about? So anyway, Andrew gets a hold of this diary and says, my final revenge is going to be to publish his account. But we're Julia and I are adding notes and annotating it and making it a little more clear without actually fully revealing his secret. And that's how Borden's book came to be published. So you have Borden lying about his true nature and then Andrew actually gets control of the entire narrative. And so you don't know what Andrew has added and what he well, what was actually right original words so just like yeah that's one of many many things that you're like oh wow so yeah who really is telling the truth here yeah definitely want to go back and see a physical copy of it to see if there's any indication like that in the margins or anything like that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but i mean again with all the known stuff you've got it's just an entire checklist you got doubles you've got you know oh, memory yeah. and flashbacks and differing perspectives you can see the same event but two different interpretations the feeling of abandonment obsession of course obviously illusion and sleight of hand and twists got a little dash of noir in there when lady Catherine and andrew first meet she's um kind of like the client hiring the private detective sort of trying to figure out hey mm-hmm. also it just 
He's a little Walter Neff because he's like looking down her dress a couple of times. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, and you got your flip sides of the same coin with Angier and Borden being just fantastic foils of each other. People being their own worst enemy and knowledge. You got to know something. Do you want to know it? What happens when you do know it? So characters finding that out all over the place. And the difference between... And Tom Schoen goes into this a little bit too, uh, more when he's talking about the movie, but the, you know, the difference between showmanship and craftsmanship and how they both approach magic in a very different way. Andrea clearly was doing it out of a way to, at first, I think, feel closer to his dad, probably, because I, I noted so many instances where his fascination with, you know, my only wish is to bring him back from the dead. That's all I want to do. I want to figure out how I can, you know, impact life after death which he and you know is huge foreshadowing because he ends up doing that and then also you know ends up killing himself nightly for his art through the machine that he uses from tesla but it started off as a way you know like i wish i could bring my dad back and then the seances where he rationalizes like well if i'm giving them just a little bit of peace of mind and they're not really paying me that much money what does it hurt as long as the show's good and they feel good and then on the other side of that, you've got Borden, who is like, I will never give up this pact. He lives his whole life in secrecy with a twin that knows his whole act. And they go through the whole thing, you know, just living a double life that is in turn a half life because they have to form two halves of one whole thing just in order to make the thing work. And so approaching it much more from a respect for the craft thing than showing everyone what you can do with it with the tricks and just I, I also thought that they were very similar in the ways that they immediately latched on to illusionism and magic as a kid and immediately wanted to figure out how to do certain tricks but the ways that they right. went about it were way different because you've got Borden just practicing for hours and hours on end until he can figure out how to do it supposedly according to the journal and then you've got Angier basically just being like go buy me all those books and I'm going to read those books and then I'm going to figure out all the tricks. Yeah. And, and, and Andrew has to do that because his first experience with when he asks the magician to reveal things is he gets rebuffed, but Borden finds a facilitating, well, not really mentor, but the guy is like, okay, sure. Yeah. I'll show you some things. If yeah. he, once he realized that he was, that Borden was genuinely interested and yeah, there's a lot of different, like again, with the foils of it. Yeah. Andrew's like, privileged guy borden's working class andrew's family situation is a bit fractured and borden's is implied at least at the <laughs> very functional if not you know happy mm -hmm. um, yeah. their first experiences with magic are different and andrew kind of has to start his magic career by really like just putting his nose to the grindstone and having so many rejections he, so much rejection he considers suicide <laughs> early on yeah. Um, but Borden has kind of that in by being able to be around the stage the whole time since he can do carpentry. And then for Andrew in his magic career, it's like everything it's for him until before his brother dies. It's all he has. He has to succeed or he's going to die. But Borden at the very mm -hmm. least has something he can fall back on. And then, yeah, most notably that Andrew has to have like an entire team to help him create his illusions. Cause he notes that he's terrible at like, I, when I see a trick, I have no idea how it's done. I have to be told the secret yeah. to figure it out and then I can perform it. So he's really just, um, which is exactly the showman with cutter. <laughs> exactly. He's, he's the showman with the, has the skills and the ability to learn, but Borden is kind of a, 
he, he knows how to do all the magic. He has the imagination to think up new tricks. He's kind of a magician's magician, I suppose you could say. And he's all about his secrets and lies. But they really are, they're a lot more alike than they think they are. Uh, oh, they're so very least, especially, yeah. especially with women. <laughs> uh, yes. I noticed that the whole mistress situation. I was like, wow, these people are exactly the same. Yeah. Victorian times. What can I say? Most that particularly. One that one entry where I think it was Borden where he was like, my life is going great. I've got, you know, a good family. I've got a house. I've got a thriving career. I've got a wife. I've got kids. I've got a mistress. I couldn't want anything. <laughs> Everything's awesome. But I would say most notably the way they're alike um, is actually kind of illustrated through some self-denial on Angier's part because he says, I would go and do go to considerable lengths to protect my secrets, but I would not let secrecy become an obsession. And also, mm-hmm. but surely in the end, it is Borden who is the fool. Two lives made into one means a having of those lives. While one lives in the world, the other hides in another world. Literally non-existent, a lurking spirit, a doppelganger, a prestige. But obviously that's exactly what Angier's fate is. His shade, in his area later writes, while he had corporeality and freedom of movement in the world from the moment of the accident, he was doomed to die. This is talking about the still real life Angier. Meanwhile, yeah. I had been condemned to a life in the shadows, but my health was intact. Angier's ghost writes, so... Maybe one of the best tricks this book pulls is that's what happens to both of them in different ways. Again, flip sides of the same coin. Exactly. Yeah. Even when the ways that they perform the transported man trick, both of them, they both go about it different ways, obviously, because one's copying the other. But you can clearly see like the the shared obsession and the the shared drive between the two of them with that. Yeah, and they both achieve uh, massive success because of it in their way. Mm-hmm. I suppose you could say in the end, Angier sort of wins, but I guess, but like, I don't know. Extremely like, known in his rather... fashion. It's very Faustian because yeah. he gets to, he ends up controlling both narratives from a historical perspective. And he, that is true. That's he true. has all that money. He's able to do that. But the cost, though, his, his ghost, his shade remains and haunts the estate really. But also their legacy, both of them, is all that baggage left for their families that leads to the death of that poor child. But who, of course, of course, Andrew is the product of that because it's implied that obviously after Nikki died that they discovered Andrew, they discovered his copy. And that's and I suppose his father couldn't obviously (laughs) such an awful event. That's why he was put up for adoption. Yeah. So. But still, it does end on that. I don't know if you'd call it a hopeful note, but it is it provides some closure in that it implies that this feud can finally be laid to rest with Angier's ghost going off into the darkness and Wesley retrieving his his twin and seemingly being on decent terms with Kate as the book closes. Yeah, but you know, it's I, I never got the I never got the feeling that she like wanted to start any a feud or anything back up with him again. It was purely just a this is finally the generation that they want to stop it. Yeah, yeah. Since she witnessed this whole event, she needed some closure and she needed to meet Andrew and try and figure out like, do you remember this? Can you help me 
necessarily banish the demons, but at least quiet them. And right, what can we do? Because she's been carrying that knowledge for for years, and Andrew has no idea of anything until she tells it all to him. Yeah. So, just oof. Uh, man, what else do we have here? Because we we both took extensive notes, and yeah, there's uh, um from the very beginning. I thought it was just a funny, humorous note when Wesley shows up at the house and he's trying to see if this priest actually is um, by locating and everything. Yeah. Um, that false tip he got to make him show up at this religious sects headquarters. Yeah. The, the sign outside the church says rapturous church of Christ. Jesus welcomes you. No visitors without an appointment. <laughs> <laughs> like Jesus loves you and Jesus uh, cares for you, but only if you take a number and wait, um, but <laughs> the big tip off for anything Nolan related that I first saw was um, when Wesley says, or no, I think this is when we finally get into Borden's journal. Let me then first consider and describe the method of writing this account. The very act of describing my secrets might indeed be construed as a betrayal of myself, except of course, that as I am an illusionist, I can make sure you only see what I wish you to see. A puzzle is implicitly involved. And if that is not Nolan with any movie he's made and or talking to people about his like views on anything, really, then I don't no, know what is. No kidding. Uh, you only see what I want you to see. And then that also goes into the, you know, the movie, probably maybe the movie's most famous line, you want to be fooled. Um, right. And then... A lot of good explanations of um, just the whole, a lot of the stuff that they give to Cutter in the movie about the act of being a magician and the act of when you pull the prestige and what you do and everything like that. But when I first started to note the double narrator for Borden's journal was on page 44. It might have been earlier, but this was the first spot that I noticed it where he says, you've said nothing of this to me. What is it? How far is this to be taken? I must write no more until I know. And just, you can even start to see them, the clandestine ways that they're communicating with each other, even through this journal. Yeah. Um, and I really, I liked the, cause this is like the, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm sure if someone read this book way before the movie came out, I wonder how they dealt with the twist and all of that stuff. But the, I love how it's written that there's, the clues are all there. Um, yeah. Right out of the open, just like Nolan does with all of his stuff. And just like they talk so much about in the prestige where it's the audience is already looking, but they, it's not the, not so much the reasoning behind the trick that matters, but it's the presentation of it to get them to enjoy it. Um, yeah. And if you really are looking for all the clues here, like they're there, you can take a look at it and figure it out. But if you want to go along for the ride, it's still a fun time. But that's when the first person singular thing happens twice. And then there's some tense changes uh, later on throughout the novel. But yeah, just the writing of this is just a feat in and of itself. And the way that it doubles back on itself and constant like self-references itself and all the different timelines that are juggling in the air. Like it's a feat. I was impressed. Yes, very much. So I, it's the best thing I've read in a while, I think personally, which I don't get up to quite as much reading as I would like, but even so 
this was some high quality stuff. I think I, yeah. I, I think I coined for myself the phrase steampunk gothic is uh, <laughs> yeah. how I'm thinking of it to myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in regards some some Nolan things, there's a quote that from the variations that I think is really relevant because of course mainly talking in the context of the film but no one mentions the right. way Angier says real magic in the film that's a true paradox because magic is an mm, illusion yeah. once the, it's science it's not supernatural or unknowable anymore it's not magic once it's real and like the the film grammar being magic exactly which it's kind of true for this the tesla device and in, in both pieces but in context you still have like a little bit of an illusion you still got to do that one little thing you've got to literally hide the body <laughs> because yeah. the thing leaves it behind so even with this real magic you still have a presentation to dress it up it's a simple secret but even though angier says what he's the trick that he's invented is real like no he still has to hide everything and i think one of the biggest questions i posed for myself because i wrote down a, a few just like kind of high level questions while i was mm-hmm reading through the book to try and revisit at the end of of it all, including the concept from the Nolan variations where he mentions Dodie Dorn mentioning to him the twist made everything before it better when talking about the sixth sense. So yes. I was thinking, do the twists in this book make everything that came before them better? And it's actually mentioned that quote in the chapter for the prestige and the Nolan variations. And unequivocally, I have to say yes. And no one says about for it. Sure. It's not just that it's a twist. It's what it does for the story you've seen. So mm-hmm. important to bring fascination, joy, and entertainment to an audience. There's got to be more to it. It's got to be something about it that enhances everything that's come before. So when we first see little Nicholas Borden's death from Kate's point of view as a five-year-old, obviously that highlights like the family trauma that's been yeah. born out. But when you see it, you think, oh, man without the prior knowledge of knowing what the machine does, I can imagine thinking, Oh, well, this kid died. How is Andrew alive then before you find out at the end that this machine just copies people and leaves one dead behind. And actually that was genuinely shocking to me because in the film, same. Yeah. Both of them are alive and Angier's twist in the film is spoiler alert. Since we're actually not, haven't managed to watch the film yet officially is that, the trap door and the device drops and the person left behind drowns so that Angier, there's only ever one of Angier around all the time. So he actually has to kill his copies essentially. Yeah. Um, so with this, they altered that for the movie, but in this, the device actually leaves a dead person behind if you step into it. So that was a genuine shock. And then just the switching between another twist, Borden has a twin and then no, he doesn't. Yes, he does from, Andrew's perspective, it wavers a bit. And then finally, it does settle. And it's, again, though you want to be fooled thing, like not believing that the trick, that the secret of it could be so simple. And then, of course, um, the twist of Angier's fate, which also sharp departure from the film or the film sharply departed from that with the idea of a partial transformation, the device shutting off in the middle. That yeah, was completely surprising to me. Some, like Frankenstein mary shelley like sci-fi absolutely yeah it, i mean it just slowly just it, the way this book transforms and from where it starts to where it ends up there's there's a thing i've 
was probably going to talk about eventually, maybe with the Dark Knight, possibly of like when I see certain movies and then, yeah, with some books like this where I can, when I finish it and I look back at where I started and there's just like some deep resonant feeling of like, wow, we started here and we ended up here. Like, how did that happen? Like, when did it happen? I don't really like understand what that what that process is, but I can feel it. And that's what this did. Like, it's sort of this sort of basic mystery. I have a twin. Then we'll flash back to our Victorian ancestors, to this Victorian narrative, to the sci-fi while Tesla is building this teleportation device, essentially, like a steampunky and then full on like it descends into gothic horror. And you're like, whoa, when did we when did we get here? Like, why am I so why is my heart racing all of a sudden? This is crazy and awesome so easy to see how this would like grab christopher nolan's attention and be a source of inspiration and achievement i guess you could say <laughs> yeah man do we have anything else to talk about i mean i feel like we can keep on going about this, oh, this for a long yeah, time, but... let me look i've got a lot of notes here just quotes that i really really liked hang on i think it might be wise to visit those Less miscellaneous so things and then yeah. try to wrap this up because I think yes. you know, we could we could just keep on keeping on. But we have we have to wrap things up at some point. Yes. But truly, if you guys are listening to this and you want to find this uh this book, it's very, very good. Even if you've seen the movie, it's fantastic. Absolutely. Oh, I th- I know this is clearly because the book came like way before any of this. I think it's interesting that the the cave on the property where the family burial plot is is right there, and that they have to spend so much time being scared and going down in there and all that. And it just reminded me of the Bat Cave from Batman Begins. Oh, right, um, yeah. <laughs> except instead of bats, there's a lot of bodies. Yes, the whole Tesla section. I thought was really interesting and a lot of fun. A good like historical fiction mashup. Like he mentions JP Morgan and he's angry at Edison, you know, Edison, which I thought was interesting because that doesn't really get touched on too much in the movie, but there's also like a prestige thing going on with Tesla and Edison, which was very real. But the quote that he says where he says, most cities still prefer the Edison system. He growled and went into a technical explanation of the failings of his rival's methods. Exactly. Um, So just, yeah, like everyone's fighting everyone for prestige. (laughs) Don't want to, you know, yeah. Like, and lasting relevance and, and everything. Um, Yeah. I felt Tesla was a, like a, a minor foil for Angier because he's mm -hmm. a bit more bored and like, cause he's really invested in like, here's how the technology, the process of it. Yeah. The process. And, and the application, but like Angier and his visit only cares about what the technology can do to further his own career and very much more of what I can remember of Edison where he got the results, but it wasn't always his own work and he seemed to be more interested in getting rich off of it really. Right. So I, yeah. The, the other quote that I saw was once he, when they were trying to figure out how to use the machine to transport mass and matter and they start testing it out on cockroaches and he gets really sad that he's killing roaches <laughs> this, yeah, because yeah. they're God's creatures too. And it makes him despondent because he doesn't want this machine to take life. Right. That was, that was funny. 
Yeah. Another exchange between Tesla and Andrew that amused me greatly was because it, it touched on like me working in tech. I hear this kind of thing or this kind of thing will happen all the time. And so I think uh, Angier says, is it my understanding at this belated moment that you could be using something else instead talking about testing the device? And then Tesla responds within reason. Yes. Then why do you not build the thing to do what I require? <laughs> and Tesla says, because sir, you have not expressly described your requirements. <laughs> Man, if I had, you just, if you if just I had told a dollar, me how to do it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like tell us what you want and we will build it for you, but you have to do a good job of communicating. Uh, <laughs> So the only other thing I might mention is um, just a, one small detail is during Borden's account of, of things in his section, there's an acute emphasis on the importance of a magician's hands. And that's something I didn't really think yeah. about before, which going over to the film, when you see what happens, mm, the, yes. what goes wrong with the bullet trick and how that resonates in the plot of the film, that really lends a lot more impact to that. And it's something I hadn't really thought about too much but of course yes you know as a magician you need your hands and not just for for doing the the ledger domain and prestidigitation but in borden's case oh boy is that ever important mm-hmm. <laughs> because if something alters with that then the other guy has to do it and i actually yeah. think in the book which is which is shown in the movie yeah. But in the book, he talks about, like, you got to keep your hands clean. You got to keep them, you know, looking like this. You got to keep your, you know, especially with, like, carpentry and woodworking. Was, and then once the twist is really like, oh, yeah, I'm like, of course, you would have to have the same standards. Right. Right. And, um, yeah, just, like, maintaining that, maintaining that secrecy, man. But, ah. Uh, what, yeah. what a great book. Please what go read this great book, book, please. Just it's go good. read it. Yeah. So much, so much to talk about. I think we need to, we have to call it sometime. Yeah. I think that's time. We could, we could, Maybe it's now. late and we have gone on about that. We could go on forever about this. It is long um, past dusk. Yes. It is. <laughs> friends friends at dawn, this is about to become. Are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we'll have way more to say about the actual movie once we watch that for the next episode that we have. And all the changes that they made and all the reasons why behind that. Uh, we'll probably do some more research uh, under that. I don't have anything else from the from the Tom Schoen book because most of that is the movie. So we can get more into that in the next episode. But what a what a thrill ride of a book. Yeah. I uh, can't wait to read it again at some point in the future. Maybe, maybe I'll do the audio book. That might be something to do. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe way to work that into the schedule. I wonder who reads it. I need to look that up. Anyway. I heard it was good. I've heard reviews saying the audio narration is quite good. So Nice. But in the meantime, if people decide not to read the book and said want to follow us, where can they do that, Jake? You can follow us at Friends at Dusk Pod on Instagram and at Friends at Dusk on Twitter. You can give us an email at Friends at Dusk Pod at gmail.com. Um, and you can find me over at Instagram and Twitter at Jake Harris four and over at letterboxd at eight Oh eight Jake underscore. And what about you? I'm on Instagram at marshall.doig, Twitter at Marshall Doig and on letterboxd at M Doig. So please like, and subscribe 
leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or if you're able to anywhere else, please do. We would appreciate that. You can support us through our Anchor page where uh, maybe we'll do what Andrew does if we can find our own Tesla device. He sticks some money in there and copies it too. <laughs> There's our last little little detail. Little, yeah. Committing fraud and forgery. Uh, <laughs> all, the, and then, all those coins. All the coins. And you can find our list of resources in the show notes. Next time we'll be discussing the film itself, The Prestige. Yes. And that'll do it for us. And we'll see you next time on Friends at Dusk. Thanks for listening. Bye.